You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Jody. How you doing? Glenn, it's great to see you. It is good to see you, my friend. Uh, this is Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. Uh, and I am with Josiah Rich, Dr. Josiah Rich, who is a professor of epidemiology in the School of Public Health and professor of infectious disease medicine in the uh, uh, medical school here at Brown University. We're both faculty at Brown University. I'm with the economics department in the Watson Institute. Watson Institute sponsors the Glenn Show. So I'm, I'm very uh, happy to be welcoming uh, my friend because we've known each other for a long time. I could go all the way back to when I first met you and Scott Allen. Uh, you guys uh, had founded uh, the Center for Prisoner Health, if I'm not mistaken, uh, here at Brown. Yep. Uh, and that's going all the way back. That's kind of like when I first came to Brown 15 years ago. Jody is an infectious disease specialist, and the Center for Prisoner Health at Brown has been very involved uh, over an extended period of time uh, in uh, advocating for and seeing after the health needs of incarcerated persons in the state of Rhode Island and beyond. Uh, Jody and I served on the National Academy of Sciences-sponsored committee looking at uh, the causes and consequences of high rates of incarceration and have been bumping into each other around the Brown campus for over a decade. So again, welcome. Uh, COVID-19, Jody, you're on the front lines, uh, both as a scholar. uh, You guys should know that he's published uh, in peer-reviewed journals. I mean, it goes on for page after page after page on his CV. Uh, But also as someone who, uh, you know, trying to take care of people who have HIV uh, infection in uh, uh, – prisons uh, inside of the state of Rhode Island and uh, whatnot. So um, I'm sorry, I don't need to be talking. You need to be talking. Uh, how are you uh, processing uh, the, the pandemic uh, uh, catastrophe that seems to have befallen us on so many levels? I know you're saying patients. I know you must be thinking about uh, treatment and about uh, about the controlling of the spread of the disease and whatnot. I just love to hear from you uh, uh, about that. Well, um, Glenn, I've seen a number of my uh, worlds sort of colliding here. Uh, my training in epidemiology and public health and medicine and infectious disease uh, in disadvantaged populations, and it all seems to be uh, uh, sort of exploding for me. Um We've watched this epidemic unfold with uh, horror and fascination uh, and sort of scramble the best we can to think about how to uh, take care of this avalanche, this tsunami of patients that are coming our way. In Rhode Island, so far, there's just been a sort of a steady increase rather than the uh, overwhelming uh, um, uh, 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 wave of patients in New York to our south and and uh, even in Massachusetts to our north. So we're, um, we're, we're keeping our heads afloat. Um, but this is, you know, this is a serious illness and, uh, and we've seen, uh, you know, more than enough deaths already. Uh, and others have seen, seen many, many more. Uh, we've seen a lot of successes, people getting better, uh, even people that are older that have uh, a lot of uh, comorbid, uh, medical issues that that you know predict that they would not do well. 
So, um, and we're scrambling to try and help with uh, whatever, whatever we can about the, getting the best treatments to people. Um, there's one clinical trial that our group has been uh, sort of pushing because we think that's probably the most effective treatment from the available options at the present time. So we're trying to get that out to people. It's too early to say whether it's, it's certainly not uh, a magic bullet cure. People aren't rising from the dead. Um, but I, we think it does help uh, a bit. And so we're trying to get that out. What is that? Well, there's a, there's a, an antiviral compound called remdesivir um, and seems to have the good uh, activity against um uh, against the coronavirus was developed to really address the, uh, the Ebola virus um, and was tried 500 people before this, uh, this trial, uh, before this epidemic came along. So has so you have a trial ongoing, I'm sorry, uh, uh, here at uh, the medical school. Yeah, we, uh, we, um, we've been, uh, we've been enrolled, I think 60 patients. I think we're the third highest enroller in the country. Um, and we really, you know, the very first patient uh, in Rhode Island who got infected uh, was a, um, a 48-year-old school teacher who uh, took a trip of students to um, Italy. And he was standing at the front of the tour bus, and he was speaking on the microphone. And uh, the the tour guide was he was passing the microphone back and forth, and the tour guide was ill and was coughing away, and they were just passing this microphone back and forth. Um, and then wow. he got very, very sick, uh, ended up in intensive care unit, ended up intubated. Um, and, uh, my colleague, uh, Tim Flanagan, who was on service that day, um, just, uh, uh, had, had known about this medication, had known that, uh, uh, the pharmaceutical company that made it and called about eight different people on a Saturday morning to try and get, you know, when it was clear that he was getting uh, a lot worse and really pushed to get him uh, onto that medication, which took him, uh, you know, it, 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 he got the first flight out the following morning on a Sunday morning and got, uh, got dosed that afternoon. Um, and Saved his life. Better after that. Um, and eventually, uh, he was eventually able to get out. He, uh, there was actually a Wall Street Journal article about him. Uh, but that was a wake-up call to all of us. I mean, we'd heard, oh, this is older people. Well, you know, there's going to be the geriatric crowd. They're going to get sick and die from this. And, and, and to see someone in their 40s, uh, you know, father, young kids. And uh, um, that so was... So what do you think about the debate over hydroxychloroquine? Well, um, I, I don't know that there's a, a debate. Uh, it, there's they, there's some uh, in vitro um, suggestion that it may have some activity against this virus. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I think we need to study it to try and figure that out. But there are trials ongoing. I think it, it may, it's too early to say if there's um, going to be a, a, uh, um, uh, where we'll end up in our, I mean, either of these medicines. Um, but, you know, when you have nothing left to offer, uh, we are offering it in some patients. We're not offering it in a lot of patients who are uh, have contraindications to that medication. That that can be a dangerous medication, as we all heard, that uh, 
somebody took their, their fish tank chloroquine and, uh, and uh, killed himself, nearly killed his wife too. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're scrambling to try and identify, um, effective antiviral treatments. Um, and, uh, the other, uh, push that we're doing right now is to try and use uh, convalescent serum. People that have already been infected that have developed antibodies. Um, and this has been used in other disease, uh, uh, settings for a long time. Are there and, trials underway on that? So there's trials underway. We are, um, we are hoping to be a site for that, uh, probably this week, um, to see if that can help. Um, and, uh, anyhow, it's uh, the whole hospital inside the hospital. Things have been turned upside down. They are, um, you know, the whole census has gone way down, uh, because rightfully people don't want to go into a hospital because it's, 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 uh, it's a hot zone. Um, um, so a lot of elective admissions, uh, it's remarkable how much, uh, fewer, uh, this is elective surgery shut down weeks ago. Um, so that helped. And, uh, are you sure that that's, uh, a prudent uh, way to handle the situation? Well, um, you mean in terms of, uh, cutting back on, uh, electric- I mean, I assume the debate is on the one hand, we need capacity, uh, and that we, it's a kind of prioritization, uh, and I'm, perhaps it's also a, a kind of social distancing where we don't want to bring people in unless we absolutely need to. On the other hand, though, I can imagine there's a cost side to postponing procedures, even elective procedures, uh, especially if they're diagnostic in nature and uh, people delay learning what they might otherwise have learned from coming to the hospital to have a mammogram or whatever. I don't necessarily know what I'm talking about, so I'm just putting that on the table for you to critique it and correct it. Yeah, I mean, I have a, a, a good friend who's elderly and was scheduled to have her knee replaced uh, and is postponing that and, you know, is kind of locked yes, alone in her place and can't really go out and get the exercise she needs for her mental health. But uh, yeah. that's uh, that's a, she's much better off than if she uh, came into the hospital. And Can got- I ask you about the, the search for effective treatment? Uh do you guys know what's going on at the microbiological level in terms of being able to impede the virus's uh, ability to, to degrade and, and, and uh, adversely affect the human body? Uh, or, or are you like shooting at the dark, trying this, trying that? Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. We want to make sure we go through trials, but we don't necessarily understand the mechanism. No, I think we, uh, we understand a lot of the mechanism, and I'm not expert in that uh, in that. Uh, Realm, but we understand we understand coronaviruses and how they replicate and how they attach onto other uh, other different cells. So we there is a fair amount we know generically about coronaviruses, and we're learning more about this particular one uh, by the moment. I'm sure. Um, so that's you know that's uh, been an adventure to try and understand this disease both clinically and try and scramble to get uh, the best therapeutics and try and understand not only as that's going on trying to figure out how are we going to ramp up and deal with this you know what we've seen we've already, we saw this coming we saw it happen in china we saw it happen in italy we saw it happen in the rest of europe and we saw it happen in new york and now it's happening you know right now here for us so it's we we're we're learning little, little bits and pieces 
and and on how to better deal with it. Um, and that's you know that's the it, it's it, I'm just thinking about you know as our hospital is starting to fill up with these very sick patients, how how much farther along we are than the poor people in China when the first cases came through. We had no idea what uh, what was coming through, uh, but knew there was something and then figured it out. And then, I mean, it's really, uh, uh, it's a testament to our uh, abilities to that we've actually figured out what this virus was quickly and and what it how it presented clinically and how to you know, develop the test for it. I mean, that's all been at lightning speed. Um, and of course, there are a lot of mistakes made, and we we are far worse off than we could have been. But uh, we also could have even been far worse off had we not had that capacity um, to build that. Um, but you know, again, when this first came out in China, uh, one of the early things that we noticed was there was a large number of prisoners that got infected all at once. And that was, you know, as we're realizing how this, how this transmits and how the people are, many of them are probably contagious before they get symptoms. I and mean, we were just learning that. Now we know, of course, there's a lot of people that are likely contagious that don't have any symptoms. Um, that, uh, and that there is, you know, rapid person to person transmission uh, and that it can spread through a congregate setting very rapidly. So we've known this about different infectious diseases that are, you know, transmitted human to human, either airborne or, or through uh, uh, objects that you touch or cough on or sneeze on, um, so-called fomites. Um, and, and we've known that, you know, there have been outbreaks of diseases in military barracks and college dormitories and, and other congregate settings. And here we've just seen it play out. Boom, there's a cruise ship. Wow, look at that take off. And oh, look at there's a nursing home. Boot, that look. And then these correctional facilities. So um, that was, uh, I guess, February that we, that, that those reports came out of China about the uh, correctional uh, spread. Um, and so it became apparent pretty quickly that this is going to happen here because, of course, we're the lead incarcerator in the world uh and we have uh, you know 2.3 million people behind bars uh that are susceptible and when we look at those people uh about half of them have at least one chronic medical condition which would put them at increased risk for um becoming one of those uh, more severely impacted people that get sick so again you know 80 percent of people they're going to get this they're going to do fine 20% are going to get sick enough to need to be in the hospital. 5% of the total are probably going to need intensive care and uh, and maybe intubation and put on a ventilator. So looking at that proportion, as this spreads through correctional facilities that we know have people with chronic disease, we know that our policies of the last decades of uh, uh, harsher and harsher punishments uh, have increased the aging of our um, incarcerated population. That uh, that we have a, a large group of people that are going to not do well with this virus. Um, now, of course, 
correctional settings don't have hospitals on site for the most part. They don't have the ability to give uh, any kind of intensive care. Um, some of them have some capacity to give oxygen, but um, but most don't uh, have that kind of. So, of course, these are people that are going to need to be tra- uh, transferred out into local uh, healthcare facilities. And then we realized that the, the magnitude of this epidemic, that people, first of all, you're likely to have very rapid spread through correctional facilities, and people, a lot of large number of people infected all at once. Um, and that'll put a huge burden onto the local healthcare settings. Um, I can only imagine what's going on right now in Rikers Island uh, in New York City when New York has been, you know, at or above capacity to deal with people. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw in Italy, you know, the, the disease took off and the mortality rate was going up, and then it just, there was a bend in the curve right when um, uh, they hit capacity. So when you run out of ventilators, when you run out of space in the emergency room, space in the hospital, that's when people, and and these people I've been taking care of for the past month, that if you give them enough support, uh, most of them um, can, uh, most of them will will make it through it um, if you can give them enough support. Uh, but the point is, when your when your hospital system is overwhelmed, um, uh, people can't even get that kind of support. And you know, I would say uh, many of the people that get hospitalized would not survive. And I'm not talking about all the ones that go to the intensive care unit. Uh, the ones that stay on the floor and just need some oxygen support. Um, if they didn't get that, uh, many of them would die. So. Um, now, I've been reading reports in the last uh, day or two about New York City hospital capacity, Javits Center, for example, uh, being very much under uh, full capacity utilization uh, yeah. that uh, suggests that it hasn't developed to be as much of a constraint as people had initially thought it would be. Is that right? Or is, have we just not gotten to that point yet? Well, I, you know, we've, there's a lot of talk about trying to flatten the curve, and I think that's what we're trying to do. Um, but when you look at the images of those emergency rooms just jammed up with stretchers and, you know, you can't, it's hard to give the kind of, you know, close attention to people uh, that they need. And we can see people get sick very quickly with this. Um, so you can put them off in the corner and give them some oxygen, but if you're not paying close attention, when you turn around, they're going to be like desperate and you need to rush in and uh, put them on a ventilator and get them to intensive care unit. So um, as people get very sick very quickly, if they're in a care environment where there's there's not enough uh, people paying enough close enough attention uh, that people can get, um, you know, if that happens, then be, people start, you know, the mortality starts to go up. Okay, you spoke about the potential for disaster inside of the confined um, uh, area of a prison. Are we, in fact, seeing that? You said you can't imagine what happens at Rikers Island. What do we know about the health condition of people confined at uh, Rikers Island and other such places, Cook County Jail Um, in Chicago, et cetera? So there are, you know, news reports coming out, um, and uh, the – Chief uh, Health Officer at Rikers Island issued a desperate appeal 
to release people. So, so you have people in these congregate settings. What can you do to try and reduce them all getting infected at once and overwhelming the health system and overwhelming the correctional system? And the first thing you can do is try and get as many people out as possible. And when we think about why we incarcerate people, and I guess I'm a bit uh, biased by the fact that for the last 25 years, I've spent time every week behind bars taking care of people. So I've met thousands and thousands of people and as their physician, and I have, um, you know, heard their personal stories and got to know them as individuals. And um, I know that most people don't need to be locked up and don't need to be locked up for that long. Um, And if we just simply take a look at the rest of the world, somehow every other functioning society uh, is able to function with incarcerating just a fraction of the, 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 the people that we incarcerate. So I don't think there's anything very different about the people in America versus people all over the world. Um, and I think we, it, it's really our approach that's, that's uh, causing trouble. Um, but it's often justified in a, well, we need to be, these need, people need to be locked up for public safety. Um, you know, you mentioned Scott Allen. Uh, 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 Scott Allen is now in Riverside, California. He's involved in their local correctional system there as uh, providing some sort of oversight. Um, and he brought this to the sheriff's attention early. There's going to be an outbreak here, and this should be prevented, uh, and we should let as many people out as possible before the break happens. Um, and he went on record, uh, the sheriff, in public, and said there's not a single person out of these 3,000 people that you know should not be here. This is all a public safety risk every single individual and the public safety is, is uh, risk is greater uh, by letting than, than you know, to let them out than by any kind of epidemic that, that might happen behind bars here. Uh, if I may, it's yeah. obvious, it's obvious to me why that sheriff and every other sheriff has to say what you just got to say. And he said, which is that if the uh, event the uh, random event of a pandemic, which exposes uh, the vulnerability of these people who are confined, were to be met by simply letting them out, then the legitimacy of having locked them up in the first place or returning to locking them up when the pandemic is over will have been completely eviscerated. So he can't let them out. I mean, am I wrong in that? Well, he, that's his party line, uh, but yeah. that was three weeks ago that he said that. Um, and in those interim three weeks, they've had an outbreak. They've had an epidemic there. Uh, this is Riverside that you're talking about. Riverside uh, County, California. Um, and two correctional officers have died uh, from coronavirus that they've got infected on the job. So I think, you know, we need to really reexamine what we're talking about when we say public safety. You know, those correctional officers died specifically because of the job they had and because of the outbreak that occurred there because they're in, because all of these people are in a congregate setting. So that, you know, I, I can hardly imagine that any of those 3,000 people let out would go and kill a couple of correctional officers uh, within a few weeks. 
We uh, won't gather in a, a football stadium or a, a basketball stadium. We won't even have a faculty meeting in which uh, 30 people come together and get into the same room. Uh, we won't allow people to sit in a restaurant dining room and, and eat uh, all breathing the same air. Uh, we've got trepidations about getting on a bus if people don't have a mask. But we can take hundreds upon hundreds of people, pile them on top of each other in very confined circumstances, uh, and uh, know, uh, just like the captain of that aircraft carrier uh, who got himself into trouble by desperately pleading that the carrier be evacuated of the servicemen there because the sailors were exposed to that he was worried about a pandemic. We got an aircraft carrier floating around in uh, Midtown, uh, every big city in the country, full of uh, <laughs> full of some of the least advantaged people in our society. Yes, they may have offended against some rule or stricture in some way or another. You think they've uh, not earned the punishment of a death sentence or a severe illness sentence by being confined in prison. We should let them out. Is that your argument? Well, um, there is a balance. There's a risk, uh, you know, there's a trade-off. So that balance has all of a sudden shifted. That now, you know, we're, we're public safety is threatened by the mere existence of all of these people in these confined settings. So it's those people that are at risk. It's the correctional officers that are at risk. But if they get sick and get transferred out to a local hospital, and, you know, we are looking at, um, you know, correctional facilities all over the world, all over the country, uh, and detainment centers as well. Many of those are in very remote areas. So there isn't a hospital nearby, uh, uh, or, you know, it could be, it could be quite a distance. So there's a regional uh, medical center, and um, that has a very limited capacity. So if that could easily be overrun um, by the people coming from corrections, and at that point, yeah, there's going to be people that have COVID-19 that are not going to be getting the treatment they need because the inn is full. But there's also going to be people having heart attacks and uh, breaking, you know, broken bones and car accidents uh, and other life-threatening illnesses that are going to be able to get treatment uh, in those settings because the settings are overrun. So it's not just the health of the people behind bars. It's not just the health of the people that work there and their families. It's the health of the general public as well. So this is this is highlighting a um, an additional expense, a very expensive cost of uh, of of maintaining this institutions of large uh, congregate settings. So on an individual patient, you know, I was trying to do some work and uh, trying to get this word out uh, in many places and, and had a number of interviews with, uh, um, with uh, the press and wrote some op-eds, one notably one in uh, Washington post and another in the uh, New England journal of medicine, uh, really trying to get this, to get the word out. And um, one um, a person I wrote back and said, well, what do you, you want me to release all the murderers and rapists and child molesters? I said, y- we have a very narrow window of opportunity here to get people out before spread happens. So I would start, if you're thinking about classifying individuals who are incarcerated by their 
charge or their conviction, then start with the easiest ones first. Because, you know, the first step is get people out. And the people you want to get out, the first ones you want to get out are the ones at higher risk for getting disease, people, the ones with the chronic uh, uh, conditions. But getting anybody out is also a benefit because that's just less people that get infected, but it also takes pressure off the inside of the, of the facility. So if you have a hospital and you have one open wing, then you can move people who are infected over all over to that wing and cohort them. And that gives you some breathing room rather than keep them in the population with everyone else. Um, so uh, not that that's going to be completely effective, but it'll give you some ability to slow the spread of this virus in this settings. I ultimately, I believe those kind of measures are mostly going to be futile uh, in the long run, that most people in these settings are going to be hard to keep them from getting infected, but it may slow it down enough so that you don't have a big burst of people going to the local uh, local uh, healthcare facilities. This is what you see coming, then. Oh, it's yeah, it's here. So uh, Cook County has the highest um, concentration of coronavirus uh, patients in the country. Um, um, I didn't know that. Uh, that was just the news. Are you talking about the correctional facility? The correctional facility, highest density of infections. That's that's. I was just the headline I saw. I haven't been. I've just uh, um, uh, been on call this past week, so I've spent uh, every day in the hospital, and uh, that's been pretty busy. And uh, after we get off this call, I'm going to be <clears throat> have a whole bunch of patients who've been discharged. I'm going to call and check on them and see how they're doing. Uh, Are you seeing patients at Miriam Hospital from the correctional facility here in Rhode Island? Uh, so in Rhode Island, um, we the Department of Corrections uh, scrambled. It was a month ago that the, the medical director called a meeting uh, and, and had a uh, – over a month ago um, and, uh, and said, okay, uh, what are we going to – let's figure out how to plan to do – what uh, whatever we can to prevent this, and so, you know, the steps that that uh, she took and the institution took were really doing whatever they can. First was, um, you know, get everybody you can out that you can. Uh, the second, and and a lot of that is not under the control of the Department of Corrections. It's been very interesting to me to figure out that, um, for example, in Rhode Island, the governor cannot commute anybody's sentence. Uh, the governor cannot pardon anybody uh, without Senate approval. <laughs> so that, uh, the Senate's not in session or not meeting, so that's, that, that's going nowhere. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, different classes of, of people that are, that are arrested, that are sentenced, that are, you know, on bail, that are uh, uh, eligible for parole that are, you know, there's all these different classes that different in different groups have the ability to, uh, to release or not release. Um, I think, you know, on each individual case, you know, if, if you have a bunch of people that are there on bail, you know, bail tells me that the only reason you're there is because you didn't have enough money to pay your bail. So then you have to sit there. Well, Right now, 
that doesn't make any sense to keep people in because it's very expensive. And I don't mean expensive money-wise. I mean it's expensive in terms of having a, a ventilator bed available when you need one, an ICU bed. So <coughs> that's the real expense. So just everybody who's eligible for parole, uh, I mean for, for bail, is there just for bail, just let them out. Call them back when the, when the epidemic is done and say, okay, you know, we... Well, you're going to have to find them first, but... Well, they'll find them. Then that's not a problem. Uh, Listen, let me. I, I heard the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, when asked the question about federal prisons, which are uh, a relatively small fraction of all incarcerated people, but a non-trivial. Uh, I mean, we're talking what a couple hundred thousand people, uh, and he said, "I ain't letting them out." In so many words, that's what he said, uh, and. Uh, I want to ask you, in the spirit of William Barr, I'm obviously devil's advocating here. A, what about violence? What about violence? I'm going to let violent people out. You say there's no threat to public safety. Well, I've got murderers. I've got, uh, you know, I've got people who severely assaulted people. I've got sexual predators and whatnot. So what about violence? And B, what about the victims? There are people tens, hundreds of thousands of them who thought justice was being done when their assailant was punished. And now you're going to abrogate the punishment without even a reference to their feelings. Sure. So somebody who's there on bail, pretrial detention for whatever reason, uh, they haven't been convicted. If they had money, they'd be out. So that's take the low hanging fruit. That's a low hanging fruit. Should be a low hanging fruit. Um, then you have to look individually at each at each person, each case, each situation, and just decide where does that balance fit. Is it is it this person is um, violent and likely to hurt other people if you let him out? Well, that person maybe shouldn't be let out. Um, another critical factor that is uh, is, is just a reality factor is many people have no place to go that's safe. You know, the last thing we need to do is fill up the homeless shelters with people we let out. That's not going to help. They're going to get spread the virus there just as well. And they're going to be worse off. Um, but the P and, and many people have been in there for decades and, and, and have lost connections with the community and their family and, and have no place to go. Um, uh, so, uh, and sending a bunch of people to nursing homes may not be that helpful either. Um, so it's not, you have to, you know, first make that assessment about the public safety risk, how much risk you're willing to tolerate. Traditionally, you know, the parole boards do this. They, they, you know, measure the risk and they measure the victim's, uh, impact and they measure whatever else they measure, but they tend to be extremely, uh, risk averse, um, but, uh, but I, you know, I've talked to our, the head of our parole board and say, now is the time to actually uh, be less risk averse. And then, you know, talking about victims, I mean, on the one hand, uh, I can understand that a victim would, would want uh, somebody who's been victimized by somebody would want them still incarcerated. Uh, on the other hand, I could understand that somebody might not want that person taking up an ICU bed that causes someone else to actually die 
because they couldn't get in there. So it's a complex situation. There are also other high-profile people that, um, you know, maybe at increased risk for getting ill and maybe at increased risk for occupying an ICU bed, but that it would simply, um, you know, too uh, politically um, uh, foolish to let them out. If you let them out, then everybody say, oh, my God, they're letting this person out, and they shut down all the, uh, you know, everybody would get upset about that. So um, I need I need to ask you this, uh, Jody. Uh, were, sure. were you or have you ever been, so to speak, a prison abolitionist in your pr- prior life before the pandemic came along, a person who advocated the abolition of prisons? Uh, no, I uh, have met prison abolitionists. I've talked with them, and I I I um, respect them. And I, I, you know, I've met a lot of people, as I mentioned, who've been incarcerated. Um, and I believe a lot of them don't need to be there. Um, but I also believe there's a lot of people that the best alternative that we can come up with is to have them in a is separated from uh, the rest of society. I don't believe that punishment is actually the is helpful uh, in our society. Um, uh, other people disagree with that, um, but I think some people it's that public safety risk that individual that that will hurt other people uh, if left out, uh, and and I think you know that's a sort of a societal public safety argument, and I uh, so I think that that uh, I do buy that, but I think we're not anywhere near where we should be. Um, you know, a lot of this is uh, the drugs um, and drug yeah. addiction is really a disease. And the Europeans look at us like we're absolutely insane. Yeah. They say, don't you know that punishment doesn't work for addiction? Uh, and, um, and they, uh, they, they they don't have their prisons and jails filled up with people who have yeah. addiction as the primary reason for them being there. And, of course, it, it's horribly destructive to that individual, their family, their community, and society in, in general. Um, and in being incarcerated, you know, there are a lot of people in the throes of addiction that are out of control and are hurting themselves and others and need a timeout. They need to be somewhere else, out of their environment, that that is the, in the moment, that is the best thing. But staying there for long periods of time uh, doesn't help anybody. And, you know, and, and, and um, you know, I think we can get much better outcomes with treatment, with understanding and using effective treatment. Um, You're, uh, I want to shift the ground a little bit. I hear you very much on the prison thing. Sounds to me like you're saying in so many words, Look, we're shooting ourselves in the foot here. Uh, this is going to be a breeding ground for uh, virus transmission. Not only the welfare of these people is at stake, they're going to have to go somewhere and be dealt with when they, if and when they become sick. That's going to be a burden, and it's going to endanger people. Just from a pragmatic point of view, the best course of action is to let as many of them out as you can before that place uh, becomes a teeming cauldron of sick people with the virus. Yep. Very <laughs> okay. Well I want to shift ground a little bit. There are other things that can be done. So getting people out is the first step. Preventing infected people from coming in is the second step. 
uh, or should be done at the same time. Um, and that uh, is very difficult because one of the first things we did, and, and I think, you know, Rhode Island Department of Corrections has done it when I've heard. Um, and so far we haven't had any um, people who are incarcerated infected that we know of. And there is testing going on. There is screening going on. We've had, I think, now three or four correctional officers who've been identified. And, of course, the whole facility is on film. So the first officer they found, they went back and traced every city using the cameras and figured out who exactly he had interacted with and put all of those people on quarantine, and now two or three of those since have been diagnosed positive. So that, you know, just being vigilant about that was incredibly helpful. Did I understand you correctly? No, excuse me for interrupting, Uh, no incarcerated, sorry, Jody, no incarcerated person in uh, Rhode Island has been found uh, to be uh, testing positive with the virus? At the Rhode Island Department of Corrections, I haven't heard about, so that's, now, uh, there's a lot of correctional facilities across the country that have no, uh, have not found anyone who's infected that actually have a lot of people that are infected. They just haven't been testing yeah. um, so or, or screening for it. Um, so that will, that'll start to turn up. Uh, okay. I, I wanted to, I know you got to go. Um, just shift the ground a little bit to ask you about the disease itself. You're treating patients. What's happening to these people? What are the, what are the manifestations of the degradation of their bodies in, uh, caused by the virus? How do they die? I, I, it's morbid, but I think it's, I, I think I certainly want to know what's going on with sick people with this disease. Um, <clears throat> there's um, predominantly it's a pneumonia and it's Long- severe pneumonia lungs so they can't breathe they can't catch their breath that's the main that's the main manifestation and that is what people uh i mean people can die from that uh we've had deaths in the home of people that didn't want to come in because they didn't want to come into the health system and get infected didn't know that they were already infected um uh but um uh, and that would be someone who died of, uh, of uh, you know, shortness of breath. There are other people that don't want to be put on a ventilator, uh, uh, don't be, want to be put on life-saving machines because they have underlying illness and age and uh, so forth, uh, which is um, uh, perfectly appropriate in, in many cases. Um, and those individuals um, you know, can die from just an inability to get enough oxygen. Um, we thankfully can keep people comfortable uh, in that uh, setting. You know, I have a close friend of mine, and I know her. She's a physician and her father I've known my whole life, and he had a terrible uh, lung disease that was progressive that got worse and worse, and he ended up dying. And she was with him at the end, and, you know, he was getting morphine, and he was – you know, just looked really uncomfortable having trouble breathing. And she said, Dad, I just feel so helpless and so bad that you're suffering. 
because he looked like he was suffering. And he was able to tell her, I feel fine. Wow. You know, he was, he was breathing hard. He looked uncomfortable. Was, you know, he was on the appropriate, you know, pain medicines um, and, and felt fine and felt you know, comfortable. So I think that's, you know, we, we, um, it, it sounds horrible to not have enough oxygen and, and die that way. Uh, and sometimes it is, and but doesn't have to be. Um, the, uh, but, uh, yeah, so. How does the ventilator uh, device uh, work as a part of an overall treatment plan? Uh, is it a palliative, the last uh, resort, uh, or do people get off these ventilators and uh, recover fully uh, at a relatively high rate? Um I think that is uh, depends upon a lot of things. So once somebody gets onto a ventilator, you pretty much have to um, you have to sedate them in order to put tube. It's a tube that goes in the mouth or in the nose down into the lungs, and there's a little balloon on it that inflates and creates a seal, and it basically just pumps air in and out. Uh, and you can increase the amount of oxygen. You can make it. Uh, you know, if somebody's working hard and hard and harder and harder to breathe, eventually they 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 tire out and they can't keep up with it. Uh, and at that point, they can um, they can die. Um, so this is this you can now. There's devices you can put on that uh, people take at night who have sleep apnea. Put that mask on and it helps them uh, breathe. So that can provide some assistance. Um, but then eventually those are, those can't deliver as much oxygen as a ventilator. So then, uh, when someone's on a ventilator, uh, they're typically sedated and it's at least an initial part and it's, um, you know, it, it, it requires really intensive care, close monitoring, suctioning out secretions, uh, and, um, and monitoring all kinds of things to, to keep them, uh, Supported, so that's that's basically an intensive care unit, um, and uh, and there are a lot of complications that can occur. Um, but most people that we're finding that if we can support them through it, they can they can survive before they get to that uh, needing to have a ventilator. The ones that need a ventilator, um, there I I haven't seen. I, I mean, we've seen a number, quite a number of people survive here in our hospital. I haven't seen. I mean, some of the statistics uh, are pretty bad. Eighty to ninety percent uh, not getting out. Uh, we haven't seen that here. Um, I'm not sure how much of that is related to the uh, relatively slower uh, increase that we've noticed here, or whether that's from the um, uh, uh, from this study medication that we're giving to patients. So, are you expecting to see Rhode Island be able to maintain? It's relatively lower uh, rate of infection with the disease and mortality as compared to Massachusetts to the north and New York to the south. Um, you know, I could answer that if we had testing done. If we had any, we're in the we're blinded here. Like we get up every day, don't know how many cases we're going to see. Uh, we didn't. I, frankly, I thought we would. We we, we might have been overwhelmed at this point. Um, and uh, yeah. we haven't been yet. 
Um, but the cases are steadily increasing uh, and have been steadily increasing for the past month. So I haven't seen a turn down yet. Um, and, um, you know, just uh, I think the the preparations that Dr. Clark and the team of the Department of Corrections have done have really been, uh, you know, extremely helpful in delaying any infection getting into this point. Hopefully, uh, now the other things she's done is divided up. Uh, she shut down all visits, uh, but of course you still have correctional personnel coming in and out. She shut that down, I think, three or four weeks ago, um, appropriately. She liberalized the use of phones so people can, or she, the, the Department of Corrections allowed people to use phones twice a day to make calls for free, which has been, you know, not the case in the past, um, and make sure they sanitize the phones in between. They're trying to keep as much social distancing as possible. Um, another key thing is they uh, got the word to law enforcement, stop arresting people, stop arresting people. If you can oh. give someone a notice to come to court a month from now or, start, you know, do. And I think law enforcement uh, got that message. I think they also realized that they're putting themselves at risk by uh, stopping more and more people. And and, uh, and so I think that helped. That's a the, new meaning to social distancing. Uh, police officers yeah. social distancing themselves from suspects. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there's still, uh, there was just in the paper, uh, you know, a double homicide and somebody arrested and, you know, bad things are still happening. The police need to uh, do what they need to do. Um, but, but a lot of the stuff that they, they um, uh, don't have to, uh, uh, in situations where they don't have to arrest someone, I think they are, uh, they're tending not to. And, and I, you know, um, the staff at the Department of Corrections, when they brought someone in, and again, Rhode Island has a, both a prison and a jail, the same institution, a uh, unified institution. Several patients, they stepped right at the door at the gates and said, no, this guy's had a fever. He's been coughing. <laughs> Get him out of here. Uh, and somehow that person just happened to make bail, that, you know, right, <laughs> right after that. So I think well, the... So when the arrestee population hears this, a lot of people are going to be coughing when, when the cop stops them. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I don't speak for the Department of Corrections. I, I'm a consultant there. Uh, but I am very proud of the, the work they've done to try and uh, prevent it. They've also separated out into a groups of a couple dozen people that stay in that group. So it's kind of like a honeycomb. The whole uh. 2,500 people so that you don't have people that have just circulated and seen everybody. So these are just, you know, common sense things that they can do, uh, doing the best they can to either uh, prevent it from getting in and slow its spread when it does get in. Now, once it does get in, then you're going to have to do uh, strict monitoring to try and identify those people that are sick uh, that need to get out and get them out um, and then separate those that are sick from others. Okay, uh, Jody, uh, I think I should let you go. You got things to do. I really appreciate you giving us your time. Dr. Josiah Rich, Warren T. Alpert School of Medicine, Brown University. Um, so thanks a lot. Glenn, thanks. This is fun. Let's do it again. Okay, I'm for that. All right. All right.